going to say it's always a bit strange for me to be here, um, not because they're strangers, but because they're friends. And so I was thinking about uh, the first time I had a vivid memory of Pastor Q. It was 1994, almost 25 years ago. And I remember this because I had just finished Gordon-Conwell, and I was on my way to Yale Divinity School. And uh, there was a retreat, and Pastor Q loves large retreats. Even before Grace Retreat, there was always a retreat for Presbyterian churches. And he brought his friends from Princeton, Casers, Korean American Christian Education Resource. And uh, I remember just seeing Pastor Q in action, and uh, just the Energizer Bunny, deeply passionate, running around in shorts, yelling at kids. And I just remember, what a unique man. Man. And so for a while, uh, Pastor Q's always stood out to me as a unique bird. And he's in, he's in a select company. I would say Q, Shin. Shin's my roommate. And so of all the people I've known personally, there is no one like Pastor Shin Kim. Because we were roommates for three years, and, and literally he would pray all night. And, and to my annoyance, you know, because I have a... Bottom bunk and here the upper bunk. And there are many nights the springs will be squeaking just through the night because he's praying. And I remember one evening, like like 2 or 3 a.m., all of a sudden, this is when we were seniors, uh, we were in a house of eight, eight guys. I'm not going to scream because it's going to break your eardrums. But he, he screams, in the name of Jesus! It was <laughs> totally silent. He was being spiritually attacked. So I would say um, Shen is a unique person. And then my father-in-law, similar to Pastor Shen, man of prayer, just probably the holiest man I have ever met. He passed away a while back. But uh, yes, when I visited his church, I said, this is a real church. He had a church in Oakland right in front of what's called BART, a Bay Area Rapid Transit. And when I went there uh, during the daytime, there were homeless people outside, uh, in African-American white. And, and I asked them, I said, why are you out here? He goes, oh, Pastor Cho feeds us. So every day there would be homeless people uh, being fed. And then that evening, Friday night, uh, there was a Friday night prayer every night. First generation, the lights would turn off and people would be screaming like crazy. And I was a bit startled. I'm used to loud prayer, but it was it was like t- too intense. And when the lights went back on, he looked at me and I think Suzanne's dad saw that I was a bit like. And he just explained, John, these people suffered a lot. They need an outlet. They need a place where they could just unburden. And so that's why they're screaming, I know you're disturbed, you know, but, uh, and so he's a man of prayer, tremendously godly man. And then later on, uh, we met, many of you met uh, Bob, Bob's a unique bird. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, you, we need unique people in our midst. We need, I would say, even extreme people in our midst, because it's the extreme people that, that that makes the difference. If you're kind of moderate all around, there is nothing distinctive that, that would draw people. And I say this with Pastor Q, having known him, 
He's an earnest man. I mean, he, you, could, you could hear that recording. We love you and we honor you. I think he might, he might have said that a million times in his life. But he really means it. You know? And so for this area, for me anyway, uh, if it wasn't for Pastor Q, we wouldn't, many of our churches wouldn't be what it is. Definitely with, with uh, our ministry here at The Rock. And so there was a presence of prayer. There was, has been a presence of crying out. And the second vivid memory I have is many years later after I had my young ones, uh, John and Serena, and so we had Marveling Place at FKPC, and so my wife and, and, and I would come along with people from our church. And Abby, who was in sixth grade at that time, would be the babysitter for our girls. And so that was a start, I would say, of a prayer movement. Okay? It didn't really take on to the extent that Bob had prophesied. I think it's still on its way. But he had said a first thousand to the wall, then 144,000, then 400,000. And I, I mentioned this because when I said yes to KPCR, the old church, before I talked to anyone, the Lord had spoken to my heart, I'm going to bring revival to this area through this church. And I was uh, a bit doubtful. This is a Presbyterian church. I mean, how in the world are you going to bring revival through this homely Presbyterian church. And I could say that because that's my parents' church. I know the people. They're good people, but they're not prayerful, revivalistic people. So I, I pose that question, how? Well, how are you going to do it? And a few weeks later, um, that's when I went to Grace Retreat. They told me it was a Presbyterian retreat. <laughs> and so I saw Peter, Peter Kim from Greensboro, who was a college younger college friend of mine from Wheaton. And so I thought, okay, he's Presbyterian, all right. And then the strange man comes up on stage and he says, John Lee, PhD, stand up. I go, who is this man? And he starts to prophesy. And then he starts talking about the revival. He talks about, he talked about being in a Volkswagen bug with seven to eight Korean American pastors asking the wrong questions and wondering, What's going on? Why do we fail? Something like that. And, and, and this car drove up on top of a mountain, and the Lord says, get out of the car. And they all get out, including Bob. And he says, look over the mountain. And thousands upon thousands of dark-haired youths are coming out. And Bob asks the Lord, who are these? And the Lord says, these are Korean-American youth. They will usher in the great revival. At that time, Bob didn't know Asian, Asian, Koreans. So he asked the Lord, why them? And the Lord said, because they're the least of these. And that vision, that dream has stayed with me. And it's by these visions we live. Even as I was praying, I was wondering, I was praying for all of us here. And that is, you need to understand, not just your role here, but your narrative in God. What is God doing in your life? What is he speaking? How are you growing? Unless you understand your own narrative with God, you will be led by other narratives. And, and with the strong church, any, any church, somebody else's story or narrative will define your narrative. And because it's not yours, it won't really fit. Okay? It won't feel like that is your story. And you have to make this Jesus thing your story. 
And the way you do that is to be totally honest and totally be sincere with God and connect. Not everyone is a crier. Jenny is. I mean, you know, we have we got some powerful women here. You got Jessica, Kyunga, Jenny. It's going to be IHOP intensity here. But that's who they are. Okay. Perhaps the way you are is very quiet. Maybe it's more contemplative. Maybe it's more silence. But you need to discover who God is in your life. Because if you don't, then everything is kind of a charade. It's really a play instead of reality. And so as I was praying tonight for all of you, I thought, before they are leaders of this church, you are sons and daughters of God, and you need to discover who you are. You need to know how to connect with God. And, and it takes courage. You know, connecting with God is not automatic. Just like a relationship. Think about your deepest friendship. Some, some people are gifted in friendship. They just make friends easily. Others a bit more reserved. Others have issues, fear, distrust. And so not every single person has the same kind of wherewithal to make friends. And in the same way, when we come before Jesus, we, ha we have our baggage. Some of you made instant friends with Jesus. You fell in love with Jesus, got that first love, and, and you've never strayed away from that first love. If that's the case, hallelujah. Others of you came to Jesus not because you really felt something, but because of your friends, your family, other people around you, and, and it seemed like a good thing, so you kind of jumped, you know, you jumped in. But it never took hold of you. And so one of the things I want to pray for, which is not on the topic here as I was praying, is, is that you will connect. And I do want to pray right now for that. Okay? Jesus, I thank you for each and every person here tonight, and Lord, we just lay aside all the sort of the paraphernalia, all the trappings, and we just come before you in our utter nakedness of heart and openness to you. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each one and that you would connect with them. And if they need to know you, perhaps for the first time in a genuine way, we ask that that would happen starting tonight. And for those who've been walking with you, maybe even running with you, but they've been led astray, they've been running not with any direction, but almost on a treadmill, I, I just ask that you would stop them and get them off the treadmill onto a path. And it's okay to walk, Lord. It's not, they don't have to run. It's okay to walk step by step. So I pray, Lord, that you would allow them to do that. In you, there is safety. In you, there's security. In you, Lord, there is your love. And so we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. The other thing I want to kind of share, this is not related, but uh, the pastor accused a friend, but I think he's got the best grandkids in the world. I mean, they're Anna and Michael, 
were over at the house about two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago. Two weeks ago, actually, it was a Thursday evening. And uh, initially, they were just going to bring Riley Joy. But then you had the PPP here, so the, the other two came. And, and, uh, and to see Riley Joy the first time, I, I kid you not, the first time I saw her, because that's Pastor Q. <laughs> I don't know how, how many of you have that same reaction, because she has those laughing eyes, smiley eyes. And but her eyes are like, all night. <laughs> And the eternity of what, a, what an amazing young little girl, already wise beyond her years. Xavier, X-Man, I mean, he's just eating, you know, the straw. He's like rubbing on his shirt. He's a boy boy. And so that was one of the joys. And, and it's interesting, I, I bring this up, because depending on what you're going through, depending on what you're going through, okay, that thing that you're going through will occupy your, your, your vision. Okay. And so as young parents, I'm sure for Michael and Anna, 99% of their brain is occupied with the welfare of their kids and 1% with something else. Okay. And so the key is, what are you thinking about? What are you seeing? And of course, life happens. And, and if you're a student, studies, if you're newly married, the spouse, if you have a new job, the job, you know. There, so there are things that occupy our minds. Okay. And so we need to always ask ourselves, are those things that are occupy our minds essential to who I am? Is it really important? I mention these things because for a parent, you do want to think about your kids. It would be strange to be so spiritual, you don't think about the kids. I would say Suzanne's father verged on that a bit. He grew up very wealthy. He had no sense of money. And he was such a prayerful man that he didn't even really know how to relate to his own daughter and son in a normal, natural way. I remember visiting him, visiting him, uh, Suzanne's family, for the first time. He had come in. It was a Sunday evening. He was in a suit. He had had a lot of meetings. And so late Sunday night, and so he comes in, and then he bows to his own daughter. He says, you know, which means in Korean, please sleep well. And I thought, what a, what a strange behavior. And I said, Suzanne, does he say that? He goes, yeah, that's what he does. Like how he treats the family is just the way he treats church people. Like after the church, he would pray and bow to every kid, every any street person, doesn't matter. He would take a deep bow. And, and one time I was talking with him, and he said, I know people think I'm strange, but I do this on purpose. Because when I see people, I see the image of God, and, and, and I want to honor them. And so in some ways, that's an amazing thing. But to your own daughter, you don't... So th there is some disconnect, right? So as a parent, you want to make sure you connect with your kids. As a friend, you want to make sure you connect. And, and so the question before us today is that essential thing. Okay? Now, the passage that Pastor shared with me, and, and I'm sure he shared with you already, one comes from Isaiah. Sorry. I'll pray for it. 
Jesus' name, don't shrink. Good boy. So I asked Pastor Q, uh, what do you want me to preach on? And he said, the Lord gave us these words, uh, these verses. And so Isaiah 30, 21, and along with that, Revelation 3, 8. So being a good student, I, I looked at the verse and I read the context. And there's some striking similarity between these two passages. So, I, so what I want to do is read these two passages and kind of tie in my introduction a bit. Okay. What is essential? And so if we look at the larger context of Isaiah 30, we would read verses 19 to 22. Okay, so I'm going to read this. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. Although, although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of, of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you. This is very strange because most of the wording here is about judgment. And Isaiah's message was about repentance. And we know the people's response overall to Isaiah. Just like with Jeremiah, they pay no attention. It's heartening sometimes, encouraging for me sometimes, when I know even if you're anointed, people may not listen. Not that I'm saying I'm anointed. But there's a biblical precedent. You could be preaching the word of God, and the response is no response. Even the ministry of Jesus, not everyone followed, became disciples. They had a certain limit to what they could tolerate, and after a little while, they just walked away, and, and Isaiah faced the same thing. But it is so like God to give a hard word, and then he can't help but put in a word of promise, and this is a word of promise. That although you will face adversity, part of it as judgment from God, affliction, there is still something I'm going to give you, the ability to hear my voice, my word. So the context, if we look at the context, it's not a favorable, good context. It's a context of hardness. It's a hard, difficult context that the people of Israel will find themselves. They will hear his voice. Now, they will respond and throw away their old idols. But if we look at the story further, they, those idols will come back again. Okay. So I want you to just notice the context, which is difficult. Now, if we turn to Revelation 3, this is a word to the church in Philadelphia. So I'm going to read the whole section for Philadelphia to kind of give you a sense for the verse, this, the context for verse 8. Okay, 
to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. I see, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, they are but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is coming, going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the, de- and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And as you know, the seven churches were actual churches, and they all responded differently to the gospel, to the presence of, of God. Both Smyrna and Philadelphia did Good. They endured. They withstood the persecution. And the particular persecution at this time is from the synagogues. They did not deny Jesus' name. And so there's a word of praise and commendation. I know your deeds that you've been fighting. See, I have placed before you an open door, open to what? Ministry probably the kingdom of God that no one can shut. I know you have little strength from fighting, from enduring, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And again, this is a hard context. Persecution is so hard. You know, the, the, the experience I've had recently, that's been still kind of resonating in my memory, is a conversation with Andrew Brunson. Uh, I had emailed Noreen in, in the middle of his imprisonment, and I had said, I've been praying for Andrew. When he gets out, I want to talk with him because I don't think Pentecostal theology is going to help him. And I'm going to give you a little background about why. Because Kent, his friend, was telling me, I, I asked, what's going on there? And, and Kent was saying, Andrew's not just suffering physically, but he's suffering spiritually. He, while he is in prison, he just wants to experience God's presence. He just wants to feel God's love, and he's not. So I knew that that was a real concern. So as a friend, I, I emailed Noreen. I said, when it gets out, I do want to make sure and, uh, that he's doing okay. And when I heard that he was out, one of the first notes I sent to him is, Andrew, uh, I think you need to debrief well, spiritually, theologically. I think you need to understand what happened to you well, because if you don't, I think you, it's going to harm you. And so he, he, he was eager to 
talk. And so he was just here for just two days in D.C., sort of unannounced. He says, I'm coming in. Can I see you? And so I saw him December 12th, just for a day. So I met him at the seminary. We spoke for about five hours. And he just shared, and I'm going to share this because it's going to be in his book. Okay, he's working on a book with Baker. And I encourage him to include what I'm going to share with you. So he and Noreen were with me, and, and, and I just asked Andrew what happened. And sure enough, uh, just, just the, the trauma, trauma. He said, not knowing when he's going to get out, not knowing whether he'll ever see his kids again. That was torture in itself. But then the other thing was, where is God's presence? While I'm here, I just want God's presence. And as I'm listening to him, I said, Andrew, it would have been better if you were just a regular Presbyterian. Your Pentecostal experience really messed you up. And he said, yeah. And I explained to him. Because prior to his imprisonment, he enjoyed the power of God. He enjoyed the presence of God. He tasted the intimacy and power of God. And, and now that he's in prison for two years, he doesn't experience that. Now there is a contrast. He experiences the very absence of God. Had it been a regular Presbyterian, no offense to all the Presbyterians among us, including myself, no offense to me. Or stereotypical Presbyterian is whatever happens is God's will, and there isn't a whole lot of God's presence to begin with. So there is no contrast. You don't really feel God's presence before the prison and, and during the prison. It, it feels like, hey, whatever happens is God's will. Literally, I think he would have suffered last. And I, I, and I said, Andrew, I don't know exactly why this happened, but when I get in prayer, this is where... This is what I get. It doesn't happen to many people. And this is where Pentecostal theology has nothing to say because it's all about positive healing presence. What happens when the presence of God is not there? There's no serious attention to that phenomenon. Overall, I love Pentecostals, Charismatics. But their theology majors on the positive and doesn't really think about the negative. But the negative is part of life, too. And I told Andrew, Andrew, I don't, I don't know if, if what I'm going to say makes sense to you, but there are different kinds of suffering. And as far as I could tell, as I'm praying for you, I'm reading, you had an experience like Mother Teresa. Like, what do you mean? There's a kind of suffering. There's certain suffering that's what's called purgative. You suffer to cleanse you from sin. But a few people will experience what's called unitive. The suffering, the sharing in the fellowship of the suffering of Jesus. Mother Teresa, when she was in Albania before she went to Calcutta, had prayed, Lord, I want to experience the suffering on the cross, and I want to feel the suffering of those who are abandoned. And to her shock, maybe later, God granted her the answer to her prayer. 
50 years, she experienced only the absence of God, except one week sometime in the 1980s. And she was perplexed. Here I am, everyone's seeing me as a saint, but every day I experience God's absence, his abandonment. Why, why, why? And she experienced in her life what it meant, what it feels like to be totally abandoned by the world and also to experience some suffering of Jesus. And I said, Andrew, I think you went through this. He wasn't fully convinced. I said, you need to pray through this. Then I said, Andrew, your biggest fear that you will lose your faith. And I had gotten that in prayer. His biggest fear was so hard that he would lose his faith. And he said, yes, that, that, was, that was my biggest fear. But you have faith. Then he says, what do you mean faith? Faith in what? I go, okay, okay, you don't have faith. <laughs> but you can't help but love God. So Andrew went through a horrendous time of persecution. Horrendous time. And in the midst of adversity and persecution, there is still something that doesn't change if you're lucky, so to speak, if you're filled with grace. And that is your relationship with Jesus. It can be shaken. The context of our lives will always change. I love Ecclesiastes 3. I can't help Hear the 1960s song behind it, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. So if you're old enough, you know. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a season for everything. Under heaven. And so there's basically changes all around. Sometimes it's great. Baby is born. You're married. Hallelujah. You're fired from a job. A loved one is sick. Something happens that you can't make heads or tails. You're really perplexed. You wonder if God is there. See, the context will change. But the question that I pose is, even in the changing context, is there anything that remains the same? Is there anything essential? Is there anything constant? If the answer is no, then you will be at the mercy of the changing circumstance. You'll be like the ocean, the grain of wheat. You'll just be tossed. You'll be swayed by the wind or tossed by the ocean. Is there anything that remains the same? And if the answer, perchance, is yes, then that context might not totally define you, shape you. And what we get in these contexts is this, context of the. Both in Isaiah, there's something that doesn't change. And that is in Isaiah, Yahweh's faithfulness, God's faithfulness to Israel, and his word. 
That does not change. Even in the midst of judgment, God is there. God God speaks judgment, but he's speaking. And in Revelation, Christ's faithfulness and Christ's sovereign power to close and open, to shut things and to open up. There are certain things that never change, objectively. But both the hearers in Isaiah and the church in Philadelphia, something else that does not change. And that is their faith and their relationship to Yahweh, their relationship to Christ Jesus. God won't change. God's nature cannot change. If he were to change, then God is improving. And if he's improving, then he is not worthy of full worship today because he'll be better tomorrow. That doesn't make any sense. So God's nature does not change. So objectively, whether you're a non-believer, believer, it doesn't matter. God will not change. But something else that should not change, should not change, and that is your relationship with Jesus. I'm not saying you won't be shaken like Andrew. You can be shaken. Shaken and to a point where you are tempted to walk away from faith. You're tempted. But it's your relationship to Jesus that has to remain the same. Not the same quality. Hopefully you'll grow in your relationship to Jesus. And that's what I mean when I first introduced some of my remarks today. That you need to connect with Jesus and make sure that relationship doesn't change. Now, the awesome thing about our relationship with Jesus is you are fully welcome to be who you are, period. If you are a person of doubt, fine. God works with Thomas. I love Thomas. Because all the other guys are kind of thinking the same. Like, But he's bold. Hey, Jesus, I'm not going to believe until I put my finger. I'm sure the other guys are. And we know Thomas is awesome. He came came the apostle to to India. Hundreds are raised in his ministry. People were delivered. You know, Indian culture loves, like Guinness Book of World Records, they love memorizing and extreme things. And so many of the world records are held in India, like the longest fingernail, longest nose hair. There's a record of Thomas's exploit, so to speak. And he died. Some said he was boiled to death or flayed, skinned alive, but he died in, Jesus, in, 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 in giving glory to Jesus. And it's this precious thing you have to guard and cultivate. You are a gardener. Relationship with God is not automatic. And it's a false notion that because you're saved, you're a good Calvinist, that God does all the work. He does all the essential work. But you need to respond. Part of God's work is allowing you to respond. And a sign that God isn't really working is that you don't respond. You're not stirred. So there is a mystery. God initiates, God sustains But on the human side, what philosophers would go on the phenomenological side, 
on the side of your conscious awareness, it feels like you're working at it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For God, it's God who's, who's doing it. But on your side of experience, it feels as though you are working at it, and that's fine. And so you need to work at it. You need to cultivate it. Okay, that is the most precious thing. Now, with Andrew, his relationship to Jesus was deep. His Pentecostal experience was deep. And so it was funny listening to him. <laughs> it was funny because I, I took him out to, I say, hey, you want to have dinner? And so there's a nice Vietnamese restaurant called Nam Viet in Clarendon. It's the first time having Vietnamese food. I'm thinking, wow. I'm thinking, like, how white are you? Like, <laughs> I didn't say that. Like, you've never had pho? Like, what in the world? And so we're more relaxed and chatting. And so I said, Andrew, this is so strange because you have such doubts, but you can't help but love Jesus. It's a strange thing. He has doubts. He still has doubts, and he's tormented to a certain extent. But he can't get away from Jesus. So his question was about the future. What do you think, John? What do you? And I think he's going to go to China and raise up back to Chinese young people for back to Jerusalem. And so I said, Andrew, your life in Jesus is so deep that even when terrible things happen, you can't shake them off. That's a testimony to the quality of the relationship that Andrew has with Jesus. And Jesus' hold on Andrew. So at times, Andrew is, is ranting. Why, why, why? I mean, he almost says blasphemous thing. I said, you experienced the suffering of Jesus. And he was basically saying, well, he only suffered for three days. I mean, I suffered for two years. <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I said, uh, say, Andrew, you're telling me your suffering is worse than Jesus? Because I, I think the quality of suffering is very different from the Son of God who knew deep intimacy of Jesus. So I didn't want to argue, like, whose suffering is worse, you know? But it was a strange territory for me to enter into. Like, okay, you, you just take that up with Jesus, all right? The infinitely close Son of God in deep relationship with Father God, that separation is hell. And no human being will ever feel that pain. It's not just physical pain of being nailed on the cross, being whipped. It's a deep spiritual, emotional, psychological, whatever aspect that you would describe, pain of Jesus. And so we had some strange, like, I don't know if you want to say that. But, 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 uh, but since you're thinking that, I guess it's okay. And Jesus is okay. Is your relationship with Jesus constant? Is it alive? That's the question I have for you. Context change? Is Jesus alive? I found a new hero of mine. There's an Italian priest who died in 2005 at the age of 83. 
can. So I read an interview with a theologian and he was about education, so I'm going to just briefly give you how I got introduced to this Catholic Italian priest theologian. So I'm reading this interview about the nature of education, theological education, or any kind of education. And this man who was giving the interview, John Milbank, a theologian, said, well, the, the, the education is really about education of the heart. And what's lacking in modern education is that in our schools, everything is so specialized, there is no coherent view to make sense of the whole of life. And then he referenced, I love this book by Father Luigi Giussani, The Risk of Education. So I ordered that book, and I had read a few books by Father Luigi Giussani. <laughs> so I get the book. And now I'm fascinated. A brilliant man who fell in love with youth. He was a high school teacher in 1954. And he knew that the country in Italy was in deep trouble because the young people were not connecting to the church, not connecting with Jesus. And he realized he's got to reach the young. And for the young, it's got to connect. Jesus has to make sense to them. They need an experience with Jesus. Formalism won't do it. Going to church won't do it. All these what he would call reductions of Christianity won't do it. Intellectualism, knowing the doctrines won't do it. Moralism won't do it. Being good won't do it. The central truth of Christianity is what he called the event of the relationship. That's, that's important, what we may call intimacy. So he started this group as a high school teacher in 54 with four students. Now, this movement numbers over 300,000. It's not perfect. And this man, as I'm reading him, is fascinating me. And so I got a biography of Luigi Giussani. I'm going to read a few of his lines. And this is related to what I'm talking about. And I want to say his words and then come back to, to us. The greatest joy in life is to feel Jesus Christ alive and beating in the flesh of your own thought and your own heart. All rest is swift illusion or dung. Echoing Paul. Compared to knowing Jesus, everything is garbage. But he uses these words intentionally. Uh, the, the greatest joy in life is to feel Jesus alive and beating in the flesh of your own thought and in your heart. He believed Jesus makes tangible difference in the flesh, in your bones, in your thoughts, in your hearts. That's the greatest joy. You could do great things, but the greatest joy is Jesus alive in you? Little by little, as I age, I see more and more clearly what excited me when I was 15. It is this. The only reason existence is worthwhile and therefore the only glue that holds things together is what the gospel calls the glory of Christ. He is the epicenter of everything, of my entire life. Christ is the life of my life. Christ is the life 
of my life. In him are found everything I wish for, everything I seek, everything I sacrifice, and everything in me that evolves for love of the people he has placed alongside me. Jesus is the life of his life. Everything of who Giussani is is because of Jesus. That's a man on fire with the living love of God. He never intended to start a youth movement. He just was burning with a passion for the youth and for God, and the Lord took over. I measure thoughts and action, moods and reaction, days and nights, but profound company and complete witness are in other presence. He's talking about the presence of God. This is the long journey that we must take together. This is the real adventure, the discovery of the presence in our blood and bones, the immersion of our being within that presence, that is holiness. This is the true adventure for any believer. It's being immersed in the presence of the one who loves us. And all the secrets of life is found in Jesus Christ. And he does want to move from the abstract, from the theological, although he's a great theologian. Christ has drenched me with this sweet conviction. In order to love, one needs to become like the beloved Jesus, identical to the beloved. Oh, yes, my hope, immerse me in the abyss of love. And so the best thing you could do for church, for ministry, isn't doing the thing, but being the one who's loved, being immersed in love, being so overwhelmed and so alive that whatever you do, as our friend Dan Bowen shared, I don't know if you remember, all that you do for God will be out of the overflow of intimacy. And that's why ministry is God's work. That's why ministry can be a joyful work. Out of the overabundance, out of the overflow. Because if you're not overflowing, then it is Martha-esque work. It is doing the task. It is doing it with a desire for approval from your boss. It could be God even. But whatever you do is out of that being alive in Jesus, then it's a natural extension of your love for Jesus and God's love for you. This is the most important thing for each one of us to guard. And I say that word literally, guard. Because the love of God, like any other intimate love, needs to be kept, kept alive. No human relationship is on autopilot. Doesn't matter how long you've been married. Even in a marriage, that relationship has to be kept alive. A guy can say to the wife, hey, I bought you flowers five years ago. You should be, you know. No, no, it's not that. Like, how are you loving your wife today? How are you loving your kids today? It's like saying, you know what, honey, you don't have to feed me because I ate five years ago. No, no, you need to eat every day. 
You need to eat of Jesus every day. Some of it is discipline eating. Others, it's just enjoyable. But you need to eat the bread of life. You need to drink of him. The thing is, it's really enjoyable. And Pastor Q, you're in a good marriage, right? Oh, he's there. He's a romantic. It's so weird at our church because he loves romantic comedies, and we have a friend, Helen, well, Matt, Matt's mom. She loves like action movies, and so she's talking about the, the opening lines of, you know, Gladiator. What we do in life echoes in eternity. And so Helen, Helen, you know, Matt's. I'm thinking. I said, Helen, this is so weird. Like, because Pastor Q loves romantic comedies. <laughs> So Pastor Q, is it romantic at heart? I'm going to embarrass him a little bit. He loves love. A romantic is someone who loves love. But that love, in order to feel alive, has to be kept, has to be attended. And if he wants to keep that love between joy and him alive, he's got to listen to joy. (laughs) <laughs> I say that because I'm learning that now, you know. The guy cannot decide for the wife what's good for her. No, no. You, you got to, like, time out and listen. Okay. But if he does it well, then it's an enjoyable relationship. And that's why your relationship with Jesus, though at times it's filled with discipline, it's really filled with joy and delight. I mentioned people in my categories of unique birds, right? Uh, special. Hugh's there, Shin's there, my father-in-law's there, Bob's there, and I'll put Helen, those are the five. Bob especially taught me a lot of things, but especially the prayer that he's been living with. And that prayer is, Jesus, God, what's on your heart? What's on your heart? I want to love you well. Like, wow, when I first heard that, that kind of blew me away. Because I I thought God had everything. It's more, Lord, give me, help me. Let me do your work. Lord, what's on your heart? What are your longings? What are your hopes? I just never thought that way. But then once I heard, I say, that is the voice of love. (laughs) Honey, what's on your heart? Suzanne, what's on your heart? My daughter, sweetie, what what do you want? The voice of love is asking the beloved, what is on your heart? And as Jesus shares his heart with you, you are also invited into his longing, his pathos. I'm going to share this a bit more tomorrow about the prophetic. It's not about 
trying to be accurate. It's an entry into a deeper life with God. And part of that, big part, is pathos, Greek word for feeling, the passion. And when you sincerely ask Jesus what's on your heart, and he shares with you, then you are invited into a deeper relationship. And every deep relationship with the person or with God is like, is like nothing else. I mean, there's no comparison. To enter into a deep, loving relationship with God. I could use English words like rich, sweet, awesome, but that doesn't really capture it. It feels like life itself. For those of you who aren't romantics, it's like deeply falling in love. <laughs> the state of being in love is like everything else is like squeezed out. Like you're just like, ah. And that infatuation is an experience of delight, of elation, of ecstasy, of joy. And life in God is like that. Life in God, relationship to Jesus, is like that. Now, occasionally, there are a few exceptions like Andrew, but Andrew's going to go back to that sweet intimacy with God. It's just a momentary suffering. I'm just going to let my friend Andrew deal with Jesus what do you mean your suffering is worse than mine? I'm going to let Jesus talk to Andrew about that. Yeah. I know this is a leader's retreat. I mean, it's so awesome. Right? I don't have one. <laughs> we have one, but it's, it's, you know, it's not serious. You know. <laughs> but this is like serious. Like... Friday and Saturday, like our, our leaders were choosing, hey, we're going to get together for dinner at Benko Garden. That's our leaders thing. No, we just kind of chat. So this is, this is more industrial strength right here. Okay. <laughs> but as a friend, as someone who's been in ministry a long time, when I said 94, man, that's almost like 25 years. Church and ministry can become mechanical, robotic, rote, boring, dry, fatiguing. That's what people tell me. I don't, I don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> Discouraging. The same old, same old. Or it could be full of unpredictability, both good and bad. It could be crazy, fun, weird, strange when God shows up. I got to tell you something. Last Friday, so Shin was in town. Uh, I think I saw Shin at his best. He did what's called healing up. So he, Shin is a really... I'm going to brag on my friend just then. He's a brilliant guy. Okay. Um, 
There is a, there was a professor, I'm going to just brag on him academically and then some bragging on some, some other areas. There was a professor in Old Testament, Gordon Conlon and Meredith Klein, who never gives out A's. Never! Maybe one. Every three years or so. So everyone taking his New Old Testament course, they, they are working out their salvation in fear and trembling. They just want to pass. And so Shin, like everybody else, says, I'm going to take this pass-fail. And there's just one big paper exam at the end. And so I remember that week. And Shin's a terrible typist. He's like, he's like you know, 19th century man. He's got to write everything longhand. But the thing is with Shin, once he starts to write, he can't stop. Like, he has a hard time starting, but once that pen starts to write, it's like, if you listen to his prayer, it's very eloquent. It's just, like, prayers of healing, whatever. He, he's just very smooth, articulate. So he's just like that in writing. So, so he takes the test, and he starts, and it's like 20 pages long. He's like two hours to write, and he's just going at it. He can't stop. And then he, he hands it over to Kyung Mi. He's like, can you type this up? And she... Turns it in, Meredith Klein is angry. He's like ticked off. So he calls Shin in and goes, How can you take this class pass fail? Because you got an A. So academically, he's really smart, very bright. Graduated both from Wheaton at Gordon Kama, magna cum laude. I mean, he's very smart. He's also musically talented. He's a saxophonist, and he was part of the jazz band in high school and in college, and he just loves to improvise, you know. He's a good singer, guitar player. So, so past Friday, he's with his classical guitar, and he sings the oldies about the goodies, 70s charismatic mu- music, John Wimber's music, some hymns, and he says, we're just going to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. I'm not going to lay hands. We're going to ask for the Holy Spirit to come and touch you. And so he's focused in the area of generational demons. He's been praying many weeks about generational demons. We have a man from Uganda who's like super hungry. So Shin's singing. I have my hand on this man from Uganda. He starts to shake, violently gets onto the pew. His wife is a bunch of other people. And he slides along the pew, goes onto the floor. He keeps on sliding, goes onto the other side. And not to freak people out, I mean, I saw demons just come out of him. Generational demons. And then the Holy Spirit filling him. He got up, and he was like, he so wanted to come to Friday night prayer, so I told no, no, on three, you're free for our church on third. And so when God shows up that way, I'm, this is a story that when you are walking with God, ministering in God, there is never a dull moment. I mean, there is always 
weird and wonderful things that happen. Not every day is like that, but many days are like that. And so what happens in our intimacy with Jesus is it's not just intimacy. It's not just sitting on the couch with Jesus holding hands. It's, it's, okay, okay, maybe move away from the disturbing picture, okay. It's all right. Send, send courage to him. He, we were in Toronto together, and I remember, you know, and he's like sitting like this. Go, what are you? Anyway, Father, God says, let me kiss you. But anyway, I'm not. Uh, okay. And the Lord says, Shen, don't you kiss your son, Nathan? He goes, yeah. Just as a father kisses his son, I want to kiss you, Shen. Let me kiss you. And so you allow God to kiss him. But it's not just that intimacy. Although, even if it's just intimacy, that's good enough. What happens when we're connected with God is that we have intimacy, but other things as well, out of that overflow. That's where the adventure is. So to wrap wrap up this little message, What I'm going to say is a truism. Things are going to change. Church life changes. Personal life changes. Family life changes. Work life changes. Physical life, health life. I mean, you name it. Things will change. But in the midst of change, is there something that remains? And if that thing that remains is your love, affair with Jesus. It's your intimacy with Jesus. It's your honest interaction with Jesus. Then that will define, color the actual things that are changing. Even though the context may change, even in a bad way, your life with Jesus will give you a different perspective on what's happening. You don't have to wait for a tragedy for, to experience this, even in the mundaneness of everyday life. If your intimacy with Jesus is a lie, then even the mundane things seem like heaven on earth. And that's what I pray for. That's what I pray for myself. That's what I pray for my daughters. That's what I pray for my wife our pastors, the greatest gift, the greatest joy is seeing people come alive. As St. Irenaeus described, the glory of God is you coming alive. I'm going to pray. Lord, I just thank you for the dear ones here. I thank you for Pastor Mimi, Pastor Q, Joyce Hamelname. Thank you for Ginny. Thank you for Anne. We thank you, Lord, for Susan. We, we thank you, Lord, for 
Tanya, we thank you for all the ones who've been here a long time. We thank you, Lord, for your work in their lives and more than your work, your relationship. And I just want to thank you, especially for dear, dear friend, inspiration to many, Pastor Q. You made him to burn for you, and, and he's been burning. So I just ask, Lord, that you just encourage him. And let, let him continue to burning one. That he could be who he is, fully passionate. That's just who he is. And I just thank you for Joyce Hamelin, the, the steady one, who loved you as <laughs> warts and all. Thank you for Pastor Mimi, her, her steadfastness, her devotion to truth, her desire to, to see, are, are the people getting it? Are they getting it? Are we honestly moving in the right direction? This on, you've given her courage and honesty, and so we just honor Pastor Mimi. We thank you for the intercessors like Ginny and others. Lord, we just thank you. Many, many years ago, you sparked that intercessory passion. It's not just IHOP KC, but it's also here. To cry out, Lord, from, from the perspective of what you want, what you desire. And also seeing, Lord, where we're... we're where there is pain, where there is evil, where there's injustice, where there are huge gaps, Lord, you've, you've raised for yourself intercessors. Lord, we just thank you for all the courageous one here. And I just thank you. Courage isn't just physical courage. Courage at root, Lord, is really based on our heart to face our fears to face our insecurities, to look these things directly in the eye, so to speak, knowing that you are there with us, that there is one greater than all these threats and sources of intimidation, Lord. It's you. So tonight, Lord, I just thank you that even in the context of adversity, affliction, persecution, there is something that does not change, and that is your faithfulness, your power, your word, your power to close things and open things. And it's not just in the spiritual realm, it's in all realms, Lord. So you, who you are and your authority and power, those things do not change. For those who love you, who are growing in you, Jesus, there's something else that doesn't change, and that is our growing, loving relationship, our delight in you. And so tonight, Lord, we want to just settle our hearts in that fundamental truth that Father Luigi Giosani eloquently voiced, Lord, that the greatest joy is Jesus Christ, alive in the flesh of our thoughts and, and in our hearts. Everything else is a swift illusion or dumb. 
So Jesus, would you reveal who you are, the living one, not an abstract idea, not, not some religious figure, Lord, uh, not even someone that we just pray to, Lord, but that you would come so near us in a very personal way. So once again, I pray, Lord, for that heart connection for each and every person here. And for those who know you, I just ask for the deepening, an ever-deepening relationship with the one who really knows us and who truly loves us no matter what. And Jesus, I thank you that we have everything we need for this deep relationship. And that is our openness to you, our desire, Lord. Our openness to you, our hunger. Our courage to just take that first step. Uh, just get a picture right now. Uh, it's like being in a sauna, you know, like a Korean sauna. And I remember as a kid, it's a painful experience because the way they clean you is they, they rub your skin. That, you know, the, the, the accumulation of dead skin cells and dirt is like rubbed off. That's painful. I see that kind of picture. It's a weird picture. I admit that. I feel like the Lord wants to really remove the dead skin cells, the accumulation. And it's not because of your sins. It's this accumulation of, of doing the same thing over and over again. Without your heart being tenderized and, and being kept sensitive, so to speak. And over a period of time, it's just an accumulation. And the Lord in no way is judging you, condemning you. He wants to just rub that off. So, Jesus, I ask for the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit tonight. That you will remove that dead, that, that dead skin, the layer of dead skin the accumulation of dirt and grime, that you would rub it off, Lord, and that our job is allowing you to rub it off. So we want to just soak ourselves, even for a few minutes right now, Lord, we just ask for the Holy Spirit to come and rub off the accumulation of our, sort of the dead skin of our hearts, Lord. Tenderize our hearts, Jesus. Soften our hearts. Make it childlike. Make our hearts like newlyweds. Young ones who easily fall in love. Grant to us a tender, childlike, sensitive heart. And that if we're not feeling you, Jesus, I ask you, Holy Spirit, to come inside out and, and soften our hearts. Lord, you are the master. You are the creator of our hearts. You are the healer of our hearts. There is no heart that's impossible to touch and heal. So, Lord, 
with the hearts of friends here, it's so easy for you. They're not strangers. They're not your enemies. But I pray for weary hearts, tired hearts, hearts filled with fatigue, hearts that are just kind of automatic, autopilot. I just ask, Lord, that you will come and bring a freshness, a freshness, a renewal, like spring showers, Lord, just bring a fresh rain, fresh water, kind of newness, Lord. You're able to do it, Lord. We, we, we reach out for the adequate words, but Lord, you, you know what we're saying, and, and you're the one who's stirring our hearts to begin with. This is what I want everyone to do, that just symbolic. If you put your right hand on your heart, and we're just going to ask uh, symbolically, the hand is the hand of Jesus. Your hand will represent the hand of Jesus. And we're going to ask Jesus, Lord, come in into the very depth of my heart and make it yours. I give you my heart. I give you my affections. I give you, Lord, the deep, the hidden places of my heart, of fear, of worry, of anxiety. Parts of my heart that, Lord, I haven't even presented it, present to you, Lord, offer to you. So I just give you, Lord, all the aspects of my, the innermost being. I, ha I hand over, Lord, my life my future, my affections, my dreams. Jesus, it is a miracle. People get saved by saying, I accept Jesus. People get healed when they say in Jesus' name. Words have such power when you respond to those words. And so, Lord, we know that if we say, Lord, have, you have my heart, you have my worries, you have my anxiety, you have my fears, somehow that is powerful, somehow there is a kind of transaction that takes place. It's not just empty, Lord. So we know there is power even behind inadequate inadequate words and so Lord Jesus we give you what's most precious in our lives and that is our heart we give you our heart we ask Jesus that you will reveal your heart to us in the coming days we would say Lord Jesus what is on your heart how can I love you well Lord share with me, your heart, so I could love you well. I could minister unto you.
I just sense the Lord wanting to, to extend his ministry to us. I'm not just talking about tonight. And so we're going to welcome the ministry of Jesus throughout the evening as you later on go home and sleep. I, we're going to, if you would agree with me. So Jesus, we, we invite you. We, we ask you to minister to our lives all through the night, all through the day tomorrow, and we dare say all through the rest of our days. Again, these words are powerful. It's like signing a treaty or contract. So when we say, Lord, minister to us, speak to us, the great reward and the great danger is that you're going to act. You're going you're to respond to these words. So, Lord, we say, knowing that this is the best for us, we, we ask you, we give you permission, we desire that you minister, you show who you are to us in a personal, I would say vivid way. So we're not guessing, we're not trying to figure you out, but we are revealed to you, reveal who you are. Be with all of us. Thank you so much for tonight. We thank you so much for the friendship in this room. I thank you so much. I personally thank you so much for the honor and the joy of being here with your favorite ones. Thank you so much for your presence. And you will not stop, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. You will, you will never stop with, this, with the people here. Your commitment, your faithfulness will go on for all eternity. And so, Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.